So we're back in the book of Acts today, in Acts chapter 11. We're going to pick up where we left off. The last couple of lessons, we talked about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus and then shifted back to the ministry of Peter. We saw Peter raising Tabitha from the dead and then preaching the gospel to the household of Cornelius. We're going to pick up right after that. Open your Bibles, just follow along with me in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. I'm reading from the uh, New King James for the New Testament. Read verses 19 through 26. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So uh, starts off saying that the persecution that arose after Stephen's stoning, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is stoned. And then right after that in Acts chapter 8, just a reminder, uh, Acts chapter 8, it says, starting verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death, this is referring to Stephen, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So uh, the church is scattered from Jerusalem and Judea, and the people preach the word wherever they go. So first of all, they're going out to Samaria to preach the word. People think of Persecution is a horrible thing. We know we're not facing persecution here. God has used persecution sometimes to advance the gospel to places it wouldn't otherwise have gone. So God can use even something as horrible as a martyrdom and a persecution to, to spread the gospel. Amen. So, now, remember, Paul was traveling to Damascus, which is in the southern part of Syria, to persecute Christians there. In Acts chapter 9, when he had an encounter with Jesus. And so the gospel had spread into the southern part of Syria, spread into Samaria. We read that. And now it says the gospel is spreading to Phoenicia, which is west of, of uh, where the Jews are along the coast. So it spread to Phoenicia on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, into Cyprus, which is a big island that is in the, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea not too far from Israel. And uh, that's where Barnabas was from, Acts chapter 4, verse 36, and also spread to Antioch. Now, very uh, Antioch is a, a fascinating place, and so I wanted to give you, I'm, I'm very interested in 
how the gospel spread not only to the west, but also to the east and to Asia and, and parts east. And Antioch was a very interesting place. Antioch is, Damascus is in the southern part of Syria. Antioch is in the north, might be in Turkey today, I'm not sure. But it's on the Orontes River, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers inland from the sea. And uh, there are other places that are referred to Antioch. We're going to hit one of them pretty, pretty soon, Antioch of Pisidia. So it's named after a... And Antioch is named after Antiochus, who was a famous person. Actually, several people ended up having that name. Uh, so there's Antioch. So sometimes, because there's more than one Antioch, so sometimes people say is Antioch of Syria or Antioch on the Orontes, which is the river that it's on, to distinguish it from the other places that have the same name. So Antioch was the capital of the imperial Roman province of Syria, the richest province in Roman Asia. It was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. Rome, of course, is number one. Alexandria would be number two. And uh, so Antioch is number three. And it had a large Jewish population also. So naturally, the persecution spreads. So you get kicked out of uh, Jerusalem and Judea. And you say, well, I wonder how Uncle Mordecai is doing up, up, up in Antioch. Let's go visit him. So they spread... They spread up, there was a Jewish community there, and they, they preached the gospel to the Jews in that part of the world. So it's a cosmopolitan city, a lot of people from different, uh, uh, different nations, and it's a major center of Christian activity. When we're going through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's, it talks about three Paul, missionary journeys that Paul goes on, which are to the north and the west, basically, and going into Turkey and Europe. So he talks about the, the, the three trips, and they all start from the same place. They all start from Antioch. So Antioch is kind of like base camp for the missionary activity going to the west. Antioch is also, very interesting to me, Antioch is also the terminus. It's the last stop on the Silk Road. The Silk Road, you know, people talk today about the Belt and Road Initiative. It's all, it's all, it's a, a throwback to the, the old, the ancient Silk Road. So about a hundred years before the time of Christ, the Silk Road was a commercial path or road going from the west. It went all the way as far as, as Antioch, but then it went through the Middle East. It went through uh, Persia, uh, Afghanistan. It went through through that part of the world, and. Uh, uh, Armenia and China. There were offshoots. Go, you, so if you want to go to India or you want to go to India, Pakistan, you want to go to China, be the, that would be a major trade route east and west. So Antioch's very interesting to me. It's, it's a, a, a jumping off point to go to the west, but it's also a very strategic point if you want to take the gospel to the east as well. So this was uh, a place of, of huge significance for the spread of the gospel in the very beginning. And Ignatius was one of the early earliest Christian writers, is a man named Ignatius. He lived from the year 35 to 105 AD, so his life his lifetime overlapped with that of the apostles, obviously. And he personally was a disciple of the apostle John. We have he was a bishop in Antioch very early on in the church's history, and so we have some, some writings from him, and I'll, I'll share one of those uh, in, in a moment here. From Antioch, St. Father's only one. He's heading off to his martyrdom, and there are several letters that he writes to different churches along the way. So it gives you a flavor of what was the church was like in the beginning. But he's, he was bishop of Antioch. He, he had the church there. So 
And then there's the statement many of us are familiar with that says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that also. So from Antioch, that, that statement there, Antioch, so keep in mind, so, so Ignatius knew the apostles, and Ignatius was bishop of Antioch, and this is, this is a statement in a letter that he wrote. It's called the Epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians, and chapter 10, Antiocene Fathers, volume 1, page 63. So he's talking about this statement, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, which is the city he's from, okay, where he leads the church. He says, let us therefore prove ourselves worthy of that name which we have received. For whoever is called by any other name besides this, he is not of God, for he has not received the prophecy which speaks thus concerning us. The people shall be called by a new name which the Lord shall name them and shall be a holy people. That's from Isaiah chapter 62. And then he goes on and says, this was fulfilled... In Syria, for the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, which is Acts 11.26, when Paul and Peter were laying the foundations of the church. So he, he goes back to that. Let's take a look at Isaiah. Let's, let's check him out here, uh, what, he, what he's referring to. This is a prophecy. I mean, I never, before exploring this statement of his, it never occurred to me before. He says, that's this. It's fulfillment of a prophecy, and it happened in Syria. It happened, happened where, I'm, where I'm from. Acts chapter 62 and verse 1. For Zion's sake I will not be silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until my righteousness goes forth as a light, and my salvation burns like a lamp. The Gentiles will see your righteousness and kings your glory, and one will call you by your new name which the Lord shall name. You shall also be a crown of beauty in the Lord's hand and the diadem of a kingdom in the hand of your God. And then verses 11 and 12, it says, For behold, the Lord caused this to be heard to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your Savior is come. He has his reward in his work before his face. One shall call them a holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called a city sought for and not forsaken. So I thought that was kind of interesting. As he, he says that this uh, is a fulfillment of prophecy that God's people would have a new name, and, and uh, that's Christians. So let's continue Acts chapter 11, verse 27. Just a little background on the importance of Antioch before we move on to the rest of the story. Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> let's continue starting in verse 27, the end of the chapter. And in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So uh, this is... Uh, indication of the character of the church in Antioch. So Agabus the prophet says there's going to be a famine. He says there's going to be a worldwide famine. So I don't know if that's the Roman world or, or, or what that was referring to. And the response of the people reminds me of a few things in the scripture. So he says a great famine is going to take place and the people respond by 
sending money so they can get food for the, for the people in that part of the world, to the disciples in, in Judea. It reminds me of a passage we looked at last Sunday in, in Matthew 24, but this is kind of the reverse side of it. We're looking before at the people who were in the church that Jesus was warning about, But it also points out what we're supposed to be doing, according to Jesus. In Matthew 24, verse 45, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing. Assuredly, I say to you, he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if the evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat his fellow servants, eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and an hour when he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it says, The master left his servants and with instructions and said, you need to feed and take care of your fellow servants. And the good one who does that, which is, I think, of the Christians who are in Antioch, that's what they're doing. They find out there's going to be a famine, and their first concern is, well, what about the people down in Judea? Let's do something to help them out. So they're putting that into practice by looking out for their brothers, even though they're far away in another, in another land, another country. So that's a good heart. And this point of the master is coming back. Jesus is coming back. He's left of his instructions. We need to take care of our brothers and sisters. And when he comes back, will he find you doing that or not? The next three stories that Jesus tells are all amplifications and illustrations of that. He tells the parable of the talents, the parable of the ten virgins, and then the, parable, and then the story of the sheep and the goats, where he's talking about when he comes back, to judge the nations, uh, this is what it is. Let's follow uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and the holy angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a separate divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. So and he goes on from there. So, And he says, what, you know, obviously, he says, whatever you did, the least of my brothers you did to me. So this was exhibiting the heart that Jesus is looking for when he returns. Will he find the people he left behind, will he find his disciples taking care of the needs of those who are in need? And um, James chapter 2. You know, this is a, we use this passage to explain the importance of works. But this is, this is a lot more than a, a theology lesson here. When James is talking about this, he's talking about a very practical point of are you doing things to help your brothers and sisters, particularly those who are poor? In James chapter 2 and verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. 
But if you show partiality, you commit sin, you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Uh, and then he continues. Verse 13, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What is the profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them of the things which are needed for the body, what is it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, uh, that's what, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for love your neighbor as yourself. And love there is not just a nice, warm, gooey feeling on the inside. That love is demonstrated. Show me your faith by your works. Show me your love by, by your works. What are you doing? And the church in Antioch demonstrated that. That's what Jesus wants to know. What do, you, what do, are we, do we really love God? Do we really love other people? And if we do, it's going to be manifested by helping others who are in need. So I just encourage everyone here, take inventory of yourself. You know, we don't need to wait for a worldwide famine to come to have opportunities. Uh, e either in here in our own country or somewhere else in the world. They're helping people out in another country. So if to figure out what can I do with my life to show the love of Christ and the concern for other people. Um, now, a lot of people are worried today about uh, shortages, you know, the, 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 the concerns about inflation, the economy, shortages, gas prices going up, things like that. And uh, who knows what the future is going to hold? Some people are, are, are worried that there's going to be some kind of a financial collapse or something like that, or that food prices are going to skyrocket, there's going to be starvation. If it happens... I'm not so concerned about the people in the United States. The people who are going to, if their food prices go up significantly all over the world, the people in this country are not going to starve. But there's a lot of other people in other parts of the world, in, in, in Africa, in the Middle East, and people who are living on the edge who are going to be in really tough shape. But I think we need to be prepared to, to think, okay, what do we need to do? To help people and to show love to people who are facing tough situations, not just how do we survive and make it through ourselves. Amen. Acts chapter 12, let's read verses 1 to 4. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the day of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. Um, so one thing in this passage, you have to keep your Herods straight and you have to keep your Jameses straight because there are, <laughs> there are three Herods and two Jameses at least in the scriptures. I may be forgetting some here. So, so let's, let's make sure we keep, keep them straight. Uh, Matthew 2, it says that Herod the king was trying to kill the baby Jesus. That was Herod the Great. Uh, then 
It talks later on in the Gospels about Herod, who was married to Herodias, who killed John the Baptist, and Jesus was brought before him before he was crucified. That's Herod Antipas. And then there's, an, then, then there's another Herod. There's a third Herod here, Herod Agrippa, who's sometimes referred to as Agrippa, or Herod Agrippa I, because there was a, there was a number two after him, who died around 44 A.D., and he's the one who kills James and is imprisoned, and we see the end that he comes to in this chapter as well. So his whole life is, is right here in chapter 12 in the Gospels. And then James, it says, it says James, the brother of John, because there actually are two Jameses who are mentioned in this chapter. So they say, well, let's, let's go tell the good news to James. Well, I thought James already died. Well, James, James, the brother of John, who was one of the 12 apostles, and then there's the James, the, the, the brother of the Lord, who is leader of the church in Jerusalem. So you got you got uh, two Jameses here. So the James the Apostle, one of the twelve apostles, is put to death here, and Herod sees this made the Jews happy. He says, Wow, let's 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 see what happens. I, I'm I'm popular killing James. How about Peter, the other uh, the, the 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 head of all of the apostles there, the number one apostle, let's go after him. So he has him arrested and put under guard. And he's put under extreme protective guard, it says four squads of soldiers. So let's, let's read what happens after that, starting in verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting it was so. So they said, It's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him, and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So, basic storyline, Peter's in prison under extreme guard. The church is concerned 
And they're praying, it says they're praying constantly for Peter. And then right before Peter's brought back to Herod, he's asleep, chained between two guards. An angel appears, wakes him up, and leads him out of prison. He thinks this must be a vision or a dream or something. He doesn't think it's real. And uh, then there's a number, a whole series of miraculous things that happen to get him out of the prison. The chains drop off. He gets past the guards. The, the, the iron gates open by themselves. And then he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And this is the same Mark who is the author of the Gospel of Mark, who's closely associated with Peter. <clears throat> and servant girl Rhoda comes to the, the door of the gate. <clears throat> And uh, she's so excited to hear Peter's voice that she doesn't bother to open the gate. And she goes inside. And this is a great scene. So the, so the church is together praying to God. God, deliver Peter. Get him out of prison. Save his life. Somehow do a miracle. They're, they're praying for Peter because they just saw James got killed. And then Peter shows up at the door being released by an angel, and he said, Peter's at the door. They said, you know, get out of here. Leave us alone. We're praying. Said, what are you don't, don't bother us with these, these, uh, these crazy tales. They don't believe her when she says that it's Peter. She heard his voice. So, But he finally comes in there, and then the next morning, uh, when they discover that Peter has escaped, the guards are questioned and ordered, uh, you know, Herod, who's a bloodthirsty man, orders that they be put to death. And then he, we'll, see, uh, we'll see after that that he, he receives his own just end at the end as well. So a couple things. I just want to look at a couple things in this story here. One is the power of prayer. This is amazing. So many times in Scripture, you see when people are in horrible, horrible situations where it seems like it's hopeless. I mean, the only reason that Herod hasn't killed Peter already, well, it's the, it's the Passover time. Let's wait till the holiday's over, and then we'll kill him. We don't want to do that right in the middle of holiday. So he's holding off until the Passover is done so they can do the same thing to Peter they did to James. They killed James, he's going to kill Peter. So the church is desperate, and they gather together, and they're constantly in prayer for Peter. So, um, I mean, that th reminds me of, of, of several passages of Scripture kind of mine. Acts chapter 6, when the apostles delegated out the waiting on the tables to, to, to Stephen and the other, the other seven guys. The, the reason why they, want, they delegated that out is they said they needed to devote themselves to two things, to prayer and the ministry of the Word. But they thought that was like the top priority that they had for themselves as apostles, prayer and the ministry of the Word. Acts chapter 2 the first description of the church. It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That, that's what the church was like in the beginning. So the church really believed that when things looked desperate, they needed to turn to God and they needed to turn to prayer. And here we have the example of an incredible, miraculous intervention that God sends an angel to personally deliver Peter out of the prison. So, you think there could possibly be any lesson in here for us? I, I don't know what it would be. Okay. I mean, of course, in James 5, it says, the prayer of a righteous, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then it points to the example of Elijah. It says, after all, Elijah prayed, and it stopped raining for, what, two and a half years? And he prayed, and it starts raining again. 
And so he, it, that's pointed out as an example for us that prayer, prayer of, and unfortunately it's the prayer of a righteous man. So it's an effective perfect prayer of a righteous man. So not just a lot of prayers, but those who are walking with the Lord and are dealing with the sin in their own lives, when they cry out to God, the Lord hears them and answers their prayers and can even do miraculous things. That's why it's pointed to the example of Elijah. So this is another example here of the power that prayer, the prayer of the righteous can have. And this is not just the prayer of one person, it's the prayer of the whole church coming together. So uh, I just I, that really struck me going through this story this time. I had not noticed that before about the the connection between prayer and the delivery of Peter. Uh, another thing that I appreciate is the role of angels. Okay, how, how many um, how many of us think about angels a lot? I know Candace does. Okay, I do. Okay, all right, all right, amen. So we got a couple of people in here think about angels a lot. Angels are all over the scriptures. I just started thinking about this. Angels are all over the Bible. Uh, I'll throw a few questions out here. In the Gospels, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, what's the first chapter you run into an angel? Mark 1. Matthew, in Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 1. How about in Mark? Mark 1. How about in Luke? 2. Luke 1. How about in John? Where's the first, first mention of angels in John? John 1. Okay. In John, the end of John, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you'll see, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, angels are mentioned in the first chapter of all of them. Okay? Another question. Where in, what is the first mention of angels in the Old Testament? What first mention of angels? Genesis. Genesis? Okay, Genesis, first, first mention of angels in the Old Testament in Genesis. Which is the first one? Now, Sodom and Gore, obviously, but, but even before that, where's the first mention? In the garden. Okay. Who's the garden? Yeah. The cherubim. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The cherubim with a flaming sword at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. And the cherubim with a flaming sword protect the way to the tree of life so that Adam and Eve can't go back and eat from it. So that's in Genesis chapter three. But there, actually, I think there, there you can make it. You can make the case there's an even earlier reference to that. What's the first book of the Old Testament that was written? Job. Job. Okay. In Job, Job chapter one, it starts off. It says the sons of God appear before the, before God, and and Satan was with them. So this is referring to angels. The angels appearing before God. Satan's among them. That's Job. Job chapter one, and then. In Job 38, let's turn there. Job 38, one of my favorite chapters in Job. This is where God finally speaks up and puts Job and all the rest of us <laughs> in our places. Job 38 in verse 4. So Job is starting to question, you know, why does all this stuff happen? So God, God comes back, verse 4. He answers out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? 
who laid its cornerstones when the stars were made and all my angels praise me in a loud voice. So basically, when the stars were made, one of the stars, let's say that the stars appeared in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1. So he says, even, even back there, the angels were there praising God at the creation of the stars, at the beginning of the creation of the physical universe. So, so we, we have angels. Angels were present in the events that, that take place in Genesis chapter 1 as well. Uh, so angels are all over the Bible. In the book of Revelation, at the, at the very end of the Bible, there's an angel there too, at the very tail. So from beginning to end, there are angels all over the place. Okay, in, in, uh, in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, in the gospel accounts, think about all the places that angels appear. So starting off, the angel appears to Zechariah, announcing the birth of John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary, announcing the birth of Jesus. In the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, Satan says, hey, throw yourself down, because won't the angels will, will protect you so you won't strike your foot against a stone. And then after the time of temptation, it says that Jesus is still out in the wilderness, then the angels come to, to comfort him. And how many of the teachings of Jesus does he refer to angels? Some of the things we talked about last week. In the story of the wheat and the tares, the angels are the ones who separate out the wheat and the tares before the harvest. That's not our job, okay? The angels do that. Story of the rich man and Lazarus. The angels are the ones, after Lazarus dies, the angels are the one who escape, who 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 take him to the bosom of Abraham, escort him there. When Jesus is talking about the judgment, when he's going to return, he says, I don't know. He says, the angels don't know either. But Father knows. The angels don't know when it's going to be either. He's talking, he mentions naturally the, the angels. When Jesus is before Pilate, he says, listen, uh, if I wanted to, my father could send 12 legion of angels, okay, which is basically flatten the entire Roman Empire and all the Roman armies. He said, you know, I could do that. I have the power to do that if I wanted to, but I'm not going to do that. When Jesus is praying in the garden, he's strengthened by an angel. And then at the resurrection scene at the tomb, there are angels there as well. So there are angels all over in the teaching of Jesus and in the story of the Gospels. Angels are everywhere. Uh, significance of angels in the Old Testament. We just talked about how the angels were present, praising God in the creation of the stars. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah. What are the angels doing? They're spying out the city to see if it's as wicked. They're spies for, for, for God to see if it's as wicked as it was. They are in a rescue mission to take Lot and the members of his family out to safety. And then they rain down fire and destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. The, in the story of Elijah being taken up into heaven, uh, Elisha is told that if he sees Elijah go up, then he'll have the, a double portion of the, the, of the power that Elijah had. And he says, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, he sees the chariots of fire taking him up into, into heaven. One of my favorite stories, i got to read this one. This is in uh, 
Second Kings chapter six, or you know, an Orthodox uh, study Bible, it's in Fourth Kingdoms. Second Kings chapter six. King Assyria wants to track down Elisha the prophet, and it seems that no matter what he does, he's being outsmarted by the prophet, the Jewish prophet. Verse eleven. It says, As well, the king of Syria became troubled as to what was happening. He called his officers and said to them, Will you not tell me who gives advance warning of our movements to the king of Israel? And one of the officers says, No one, O Lord my king. It's Elisha the prophet in Israel that tells the words you speak in your bedroom to the king of Israel. So he said, Go see where the man is, and I will send and kidnap him. And sent word to him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent his horses and chariots and a great army and arrived at the night to surround the city. When Elisha's servant arose early and went out, the army was there surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, O master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who were with us are greater in number than those who were with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open the eyes of the servant and let him see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. And he was now able to see and he beheld the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. This is a, uh, <clears throat> it's just a reminder that there's, there's a whole dimension that's around us that we can't see. That the, the angels can take on visible form, but in general, we can't see what they're doing. We may see the effects of it, but there's a tremendous, powerful spiritual war that's going on. And the good news is that the, that the, the force of those on the side of God and righteousness is greater than the force of those on the other side. Uh, Hezekiah, similarly, is in a desperate situation in 2 Kings 19. Let's, let's just, same book, let's, let's take a look at it. Another encouraging story about the power of angels. So, king of Assyria and his soldiers are big threats to Jerusalem. And they say, look, you, what, what is this God you're trusting in? We've obliterated the gods of all the other nations and we're going to destroy you as well. You might as well sue for terms of peace and give up. And Isaiah says, no, Isaiah the prophet comes to the king. The king, the king prays to God and, and lays before God the insults Verse, uh, chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 14 in uh, uh, 2 Kings 19. So Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Then Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord and said, Lord God of Israel, enthroned on the cherubim, you alone are God in all the kingdoms of the earth. You made heaven and earth. O Lord, incline your ear and hear. O Lord, open your eyes and see. Hear the word Sennacherib sent to reproach the living God. O Lord, truly the kings of Assyria laid waste to the nations and cast the gods of these nations into the fire because they're not gods but only the work of men's hands of wood and stone and they destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand 
so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone are the Lord God. And, and, and uh, the prophet Isaiah comes to him and tells him that he's going to be delivered. <clears throat> Verse 35, And it came about that, it, that the angel of the Lord went out while it was yet night and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When they arose in the morning, all the dead bodies were there. So Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and left from there and returned and dwelt in Nineveh, and then he ends up getting killed. So, uh, Another story about the power of, of an angel. In First Chronicles 21, when David sins by numbering his men, and he's given three choices of of the punishment that's going to be inflicted on the, on the nation as a result of his sin. Let's turn there in uh, 1 Chronicles 21. So he chooses the, the penalty of three days of the sword of the Lord. Verse 14. Chapter 21 in 1 Chronicles 21. Verse 14, So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel. 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And he was destroying, as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, It's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. Uh, now think about this. David is the one who, was, who had slain with his bare hands and, and a club, the lion and the bear. He's the one who ran to fight Goliath with a stone in his hands and killed him. He's the one about which was said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. That when David sees one angel of the Lord with his sword drawn, who's about to obliterate Jerusalem, he falls down on his face. That a man who's a great warrior and a courage realizes he has no chance against this kind of force and this kind of power. You know, a lot of people have the idea of angels. I don't know if it's some gift cards or what. They think of these cute little, you know, little things with nice with wings. Okay, <laughs> that's not David. That's not how David viewed angels. These these were warriors. This is not how Hezekiah viewed angels. This is not how the people of Sodom and Gomorrah viewed angels. They are spiritual warriors. They are dangerous. They are powerful. You want them on your side. I remember as a kid, I, I went to a. Uh, <clears throat> I went to. I was going to it. This I was just back in the late '60s, early '70s. I was going to a. a, a it was they say it was a rally. It was in Trenton, New Jersey, in the state capitol, and one of the speakers was it was a, it was a controversial character. Speakers from all different kinds of backgrounds, but uh, he was he was a speaker. He was from a rough, working-class Italian background from North Jersey. Okay, when you think of Italians in New Jersey, okay, what do you think of? All right, I think of mafia. That's what I think of. I grew up in New Jersey. 
I grew up in New Jersey, and there were there were uh, kids who went to my high school with the last name Genovese, which is a famous mafia name. And you know, no one messed with those kids. You just didn't. You didn't even ask. Okay. So the the guy stood up to speak. Okay, from a rough section of Newark, and on either side of him, there were guys who looked like Sylvester Stallone. All right, but they had these glasses and, and, and with you know the mirror type glasses, blank faces look like they've been working out in the gym. They're not guys you want to mess around with. And I thought I might have noticed a little bulge under their suit over here. Okay, so they were standing on either side of the guy, scanning the crowd. All right, <clears throat> given a choice between the Secret Service and those two guys, those are the guys that I would want there if, if I was going to be in a dangerous situation. So I, I don't know if they were mafia, but they could have come right out of central casting for mafia. But they were scanning the crowd, and these were bodyguards. And, and this, they communicated to you, don't mess with us, and don't even think of messing with the guy that we're guarding. They had the mirrored glasses, so they're scanning the crowd. You can't even tell what they're looking at or who they're looking at, but everybody just left the guy alone, okay? And I think that the angels is like that. I want the angels. I want the angels on either side of me when I'm in a tough situation, scanning the crowd and ready to take out anybody who gives me a hard time. That's what I want, okay? How do you do that? I'll tell you the secret. Let's, let's turn to uh, Psalm 33. Or an Orthodox Bible, it would be. It's, I think it's Psalm, Psalm 34, an Orthodox study Bible, it's, uh, uh, Septuagint Bible is 33. I want those guys on my side. In verse 7. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him from all his afflictions. The angel of the Lord shall encamp around those who fear him, and he will deliver them. It's a great promise. Now, sometimes in the scriptures where it says the angel of the Lord is referring to Jesus, and when it says an angel of the Lord will be referring to any angel, and here it says in this translation, this is the angel of the Lord, but actually it just says... <laughs> And, and the Septuagint, what it really says, angel of the Lord. So you can't tell us if an angel or the angel of the Lord. But David says, angel of the Lord camps and camps around those who fear him. This is the idea. You're protected. You're covered. Okay? But it's for those who fear God. Now, a lot of people think fear of God is an Old Testament concept. Peter, who was broken out of jail, by an angel, said, he summed up the Christian faith in 1 Peter, he said, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Okay. Fear God. Fear of God is a good thing. Jesus says, don't fear, Matthew chapter 10, don't fear people who can only kill your body. I'll tell you who you need to fear. You need to fear the one who can, who can cast you into hell fire. That's the one you should fear. Don't ever lose the fear of God. One of the things... One of, the, one of the scariest things to me that, that, that I've seen is people who've been Christians a long time who start to lose their fear of God. They start to lose their fear of God. They don't think, I don't need to fear God anymore. God, you know, I'm, I'm on God's side. God's my co-pilot. God's my good buddy. You know, I, I, I've got God in my, in my back pocket here. 
And they lose the fear of God. What happens when you lose the fear of God? I'll tell you what happens when you lose the fear of God. You start drifting into sin. On Mount Sinai, when the people, when God came down on Mount Sinai, in, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, when the Ten Commandments were first spoken, people heard the voice of the God and they were scared almost to death. It says that Moses' knees were shaking. It was terrifying. And God's attitude was, I, I, if only the people could hold on to that fear of me, always, because it would keep them from sin. Fear of God is a good thing. We need to love God. We also need to fear God and don't ever take him for granted. And so it will keep you away from all kinds of sin. And, the, and it will also protect you. It says the angel of the Lord will camp and camp around those who fear him. So we need to fear God and we, and we need that kind of protection. Now, the other side of, of the angels here, in the next psalm, in Psalm 35 or in or, uh, Septuagint, Psalm 34, there's another reference to angels here. Lord, judge those who injure me. Make war on those who make war on me. Take hold of weapon and shield and rise up to my help. Bring forth the sword and confine those in opposition who pursue me. Say to my soul, I'm your salvation. Let those who seek my soul be dishonored and shamed. Let those who plot evils against me be turned backward and disappointed. Let them be like dust in the wind's face. And let the angel of the Lord afflict them. And let their way be dark and slippery. And let the angel of the Lord pursue them. So this is my <coughs> good, good friend of mine years ago told me one of the greatest per curses from the scripture is, May the angel of the Lord pursue you down a dark and slippery path. So you can reserve that curse for somebody who's really wicked. All right, that's a, that's a pretty good one. That's right, right here out of the scriptures. So that, that's what he's saying. Let the angel of the Lord afflict them. Let their way be dark and slippery. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them. This is the picture is that the wicked, they've got one of these angels chasing after them, ready to mow them down. And, and so you don't want to mess with Angel Lord. So Lots of references to angels. I'll put, put some more in the notes. But uh, I view them as bodyguards, warriors in the spiritual battle. You know, we talk about our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and, and the authorities, against Satan and all the hosts of evil, of wickedness are with him. We need, we need these, the angels fighting on our side. And, and Daniel... Daniel chapter 10, there's a discussion there about uh, an angel talks about he was engaged in a war with, with, uh, uh, in, a, in a great spiritual con contest, which is why he was delayed in coming and approaching to Daniel. So there's, there are unseen battles that are going on that the angels are involved in. Uh, one of my most encouraging scriptures in Hebrews 1.14 about angels well, you understand how powerful angels are and how God's used them in the past. This, this takes on great significance. Hebrews chapter 1, a lot of discussion about angels and how Jesus is so much better than the angels, so much higher than the angels. In verse 14, talking about the angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So that's, that's, that's for us who are walking in the light. That the angels are sent 
to minister to us, to help us in our unseen battle against forces of evil. I'll open up one little question here. It says, there's a, there's a comment here, you may have noticed that, that when Rhoda says that Peter's at the door because she hears his voice, and the response is, it must just be his angel at the door, okay? Like, what is that all about? Peter's angel? Uh, I mean, it reminds me, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church, they would talk about guardian angels, okay? And I thought, is this a little fable to make people feel good? You know, like Santa Claus or something like that? Is, is it, or is it real? The guardian angels. And uh, there's, uh, Matthew 18, 10, think about the, 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 the statement about, hey, is it, maybe it's Peter's angel. Matthew 18, 10, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. This is Jesus speaking. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Do we have angels assigned to us? Um, I don't know. Clement of Alexandria, Anastasian Fathers, uh, Volume 2, page 517. He said, Regiments of angels are distributed over the nations and cities, and perhaps some are assigned to individuals. All right? Leaves the door open. Origin, Anastasian Fathers, Volume 4, page 265. To one angel, the church of the Ephesians was entrusted. That's from Revelation. To another, that of Smyrna, one angel was to be Peter's. That's a reference to what we just read. Another, Paul's, and so on, down to each of the little ones that are in the church. For such and such angels, as even daily behold the face of God, must be assigned to each one of them. And there must also be some angels who encamp around those who fear God. So, uh, just, I'm not going to come down strongly one way or another, but think about the scriptures that uh, you may have more help than you're aware of. And we'll just close by reading the, 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 the happy ending to the story of, of what happened to Herod here. <laughs> All right? Rather, this is really gusty. This is graphic. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied by food from the king's country. So on a day, uh, so on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave oration to them. And the people kept shouting, "The voice of a god and not of a man!" Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So he's struck dead, and it says that an angel of God finishes him off and he's eaten by worms. Just a terrible way for a, for a wicked man to die. So we'll close there and pick it up in chapter 13 next time. <laughs>